Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Well, today I am delighted to be joined by Amy Chua, who is one of my most, uh, <laughs> words fail actually, she's one of my favorite thinkers on the planet. I've been following Amy's career uh, as a writer for the last, uh, I guess, 15, 16 years, and she's written fabulous books on on culture, world politics, um, uh, really explaining, and political tribes, most importantly, really explaining, I think, perceptively the various divisions in the world, and and also more recently in political tribes, describing the divisions that affect America today. And uh, let me try holding up the book here. Anyway, most recent book, Amy's most recent book, uh, I, let me complete the intro a little bit. Amy's fairly under-accomplished. She's a professor at Yale Law School, went to Harvard, Harvard Law School. Uh, her husband's also a professor at Yale Law School, and uh, uh, they're one of the leading uh, charismatic figures on campus, although sometimes their views fall outside the norm at Yale, which I think is very good. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, today we want to talk about her book, which is called The Golden Gate, which is being published as we speak. When is that? Uh, yeah, just released? out. Just out. Just, just came out. Yeah. And I can't do any plot spoilers here because I've only got two thirds the way through it. Although, our one of our digital producers, Maureen O'Sullivan, behind camera, three has, has finished it, and she's promised that she won't tell us how it comes out. <laughs> so, Amy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, I've had a lot of fascinating people on the show, but I think you're probably at the top of the charts in, in my book. Thank you. It's really <laughs> an honor. Yeah. Likewise. Yeah. So uh, after writing, and we, I do want to talk about some of your, uh, many of your other books, but after writing nonfiction, you've decided to write a novel. What, what uh, was the impulse? You know, interestingly, um, I have always wanted to write a novel. I just never quite had a plot. When I was little, as you know, um, I am the daughter, the eldest daughter of very strict Chinese immigrant parents. Uh, this is They were the original tiger parents. And we were held to extremely high standards and weren't allowed to do a lot of wild socializing. <laughs> so I was a huge bookworm. I mean, all I did is read, you know, read all the time. I would go to the public library, come back with my arms filled with books, and they were always mystery books. Um, Agatha Christie, every single one. And the way this happens, I'm, I'm still going to write nonfiction. It's not like I'm moving away from that. But um, I tried to write a novel when I was in my 20s, when I was trying to leave my corporate law firm. It just wasn't working for me. But I, I just couldn't figure out a good plot. And then three years ago, I was sitting in my parents' house. They live uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, in the Claremont Hotel neighborhood. And this plot just came to me. Where the book is set. Where the book is set, yes. <clears throat> and I won't give it away either, but this, the idea was a grandmother from one of the you know wealthiest uh, established families is told on page one that one of her three granddaughters is a murderer, but they don't know which one. And I have a big twist, which you haven't gotten to yet. I won't say anything. But the whole thing kind of came to me, that structure. 
And I was so excited. And I ran my daughter. It was Christmas time. So I ran to my daughters. Do you think this is a good idea? My nieces and nephews. And then finally, the, the whole setting came together because I don't know if you know this. My parents currently live in Madame Chiang Kai-shek's former house. Um, for reasons nobody knows, Madame Chiang Kai-shek lived in Berkeley, California from 1943 to 1944. And nobody knows why. The first lady of China was living in Berkeley by herself. Well, without giving away the plot, and I won't because this is in the first or second chapter, the book opens roughly with the murder of a political figure in the United States who'd run for president in 1940. Yes. And the, the book has said you've got a two times, uh, three times, I guess, 1930, 1937, and 1944. You, kind of, you jump between them very effectively. But in 1944, um, he's murdered yes. in he's the hotel. Murdered. And his name is Walter Williamson in the Wilkinson. book. Wilkinson. Wilkinson. Yeah. But I grew up in Indiana, yes, and I you think know. you named him after Wendell Wilkie. Yes, he's based. So I don't know if you knew this. And uh, Wendell Wilkie was supposed to have had an affair. With Madame with Chiang Kai-shek? Ma yes. I read all these biographies. I don't think that that actually happened, but they definitely um, were friends. They spent a lot of time together. I think she was trying to, I don't know, get him, you know, politically to, to deliver and to support uh, Taiwan or support, you know, her husband. Uh, but you are, I can't believe you know that, but that's <laughs> who my uh, fictional murder victim is based on. Right. Um, and he actually died in 1944. Wendell Wilkie actually died in 1944. Uh, and I built this whole um, fictional mystery uh, around a lot of genuine historical facts. Well, many people think he could have won in 1944. I know, I know. It's amazing. He came so very I close to I can't wait FDR. to find out what you do to this guy in the book. <laughs> oh, no. I'm beginning to think I'm... Figuring out how, who knocked him off and why. <laughs> Keep guessing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's set, it's set in, uh, in Berkeley and San Francisco, which is a world apart from today's San Francisco. Oh, my gosh. Un unfortunately, in many ways, fortunately in other ways, because you also talk about a class structure of San Francisco in the 30s, which was if you were white and you were wealthy, the world was your oyster. But if you were not white, and if you're not wealthy, you were part of an underclass that just was not not represented at all. Yeah, you know, when people say, oh, things are just getting worse and worse, I mean, yeah, America has, has changed so much. You know, there have been so in, many- In good ways. In good ways. I mean, yeah. there's so much equality. I mean, you know, uh, so yes, um, things that would never happen today, you know, like um, a million um, Mexican, I think, including citizens, were forcibly deported back to Mexico in 1930. Um, is right that after true? The is that, yeah, that was not fit. That actually happened. That, yeah, I and I mean, know, the I, estimates I, vary, but you yeah. know, this is right after the depression, and there were no jobs. You know, so you could understand. Um, and of course, there was the Japanese internment in 1944. And what you were referring to, you know, Berkeley is so just off the charts progressive now, but it was the opposite in the 40s and 50s and uh, even early 60s. Um, they were re residential covenant. So in the Berkeley Hills, where my parents now live, you know, only whites could live and it would be on the deed. And it's funny because when Madame Chiang Kai-shek wanted to buy this house, she wasn't technically allowed to because she wasn't white. And the... The, uh, the bank said there were there yes. were restrictions on deeds written into the deed itself, yes. the white, whites only. Right. And I think they still exist. But then the president of Wells Fargo Bank in San Francisco 
was mortified. He's like, she's the first lady of China. This is very embarrassing. <laughs> so he stepped in and intervened and, you know, uh, and she was able to live there. Um, but yeah, so it's, it, it, it's completely different now, of course. All of California is completely different. And your protagonist in the book? Yeah, I, his name is Detective Al Sullivan. And <clears throat> I had so much fun with him, Bill. I, so I have always loved these kind of classic yeah, me too. detectives of the golden age, you know, like uh, Sam Spade, you know, Dashiell Hammett's. Marlowe. And, you know, yeah, Philip Marlowe, you know, and I just, Humphrey Bogart, you know, it was the kind sure. of character. Um, so I, but I wanted to play with that because that's kind of old fashioned, a little cliched. So when you met, meet my detective Sullivan, um, at first he seems just like that. He's like, you know, tough guy, kind of noir detective. But then you quickly learn that his mother, you mentioned class, is a poor white, you know, she's, she's from the Dust Bowl, um, from Oki. Yep. She's an Oki. Yeah. Oki. Yeah. And then on the, his other half, um, he is half Mexican and half Jewish, but he passes for white, that he looks white. Um, so he, for reasons that are, you know, I think very interesting, his real name is actually Alejo Gutierrez, but he chooses to go by his mom's last name, Al Sullivan. So underneath this exterior, this kind of tough guy, you know, it was a lot more complexity and insecurity and ambivalence. And honestly, he, he doesn't seem anything like me. I'm a Chinese immigrant's kid, you know, woman. Um, but a lot of me is in him. You know, he's the immigrant wanting to rise. Uh, and a little bit, there's a line in there. I don't know if you've gotten it to it yet where he's, this doesn't give anything away. He's like, all these like, it, it's like the old fashioned version of woke, you know, all these privileged people telling me that I can't get rich. I want to succeed, you know, and um, they're they're all communists that, you know, and uh, so it, it, it's I think I, I actually underlined that. Yes, it was one of my so I, I it, it was a light touch. Like I didn't want this book to be political, but I it's not. You no, know, it's not. It's not. It's just a big whodunit. But, you know, there are he's he's somebody I can really relate to. So I'm, I'm try, I, I don't read the books. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a film buff. I'm a movie guy. I've watched all the old film noir yeah. movies. And I'm trying to figure out which actor you would have cast in that part, this part from then and which, which one you'd cast now. Oh, my gosh. I, I also produced a couple of movies. So I'm really? trying to think about how we'd structure this into this. This would be a good movie. I think it would. It's so cinematic and yeah. it's so beautiful. Um, you know, I think I have a line in there. Um, it, it was... My mom used to love um, Tyrone Power. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, and, he was gorgeous. Yeah, and but I, you know, I I, um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I saw think. him a little. I think Tyrone Power was too good looking. Yeah, I, I think, think exactly. This, I think a you need somebody rugby. a little craggy. Exactly, exactly. So we'll yeah. have fun. And then you've got a young woman who's Miriam, uh, is, is Miriam who I'm thinking, you know, could have been Tatum O'Neill. That's it. We are so on the same page. I loved Paper Moon, right? Yeah, that was that's a, it. And I, she's straight out of that. She, that is literally the person I had in my head. I just always loved that that whole dynamic. Yeah. Um, I can't believe you caught that. <laughs> that's only really funny. Um, you know, I had to watch out to not make her um, too cutesy, but she's my favorite character in the book. I really liked her. No, she comes across as strong and independent, Good. emotional, yeah. helpful. I mean, she's sort of like all the kids you'd like to have. Yeah, she's and she's taking. She's the. She's, she's eleven the, years old, though. right? And she's the wage earner. I mean, she's. <laughs> yeah. Because you know her mom's a mess, so. So is so, but you didn't write a political book. Now the other the other part are the three beautiful daughters. Yes. Or the three beautiful young women, yeah. the, the patriarchs, and those I was trying to cast as well. 
They're, they're, they they're be a... blonde and beautiful. And yeah. I, 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 there's so many. Oh, my gosh. But in the younger generation, I don't know now. I don't know. Yeah. So this is almost hard to cast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, partly it, it is hard to cast because it's a little old fashioned. You know, yeah. you could think of the night to the, the actress from the 1940s, 50s. I think it would have been easier. Um, For those of us who tend to read nonfiction books, and I, Sarah was joking, here's the problem with prepping for your show. Usually I read, I've got a lot of my favorite authors on, and I read, they write nonfiction. And so you get a nonfiction book, and you can sort of get at the index and read a key chapter and pull it up on Kindle and cut, copy and paste some stuff, look at, look at what's in the, in the footnotes. You can't do that with a novel. I know. I can't look you at can't the jump ending. ahead. <laughs> so I can't wait to get back to reading the Thank book. Thank you. But but I think it's an interesting read for people, you know, who maybe not normally read novels because it's not only a good good story and a good detective tale, but it also tells you about the culture a lot in California and in America and history. Yeah, you know, I did not know. Um, this is so ignorant, but. I did not realize that with Pearl Harbor, the Japanese basically took out the U.S. Navy. They took out all our ships. And almost overnight, so it would have taken too long to fight in the Pacific Theater to build ships on, you know, on the Atlantic coast. So almost overnight, the San Francisco Bay Area became the largest shipbuilding center in the history of the world. And that's when the Bay Area took on its, its appearance now, because just people poured in. It's the first time that African-Americans actually came to the Bay Area. They all, for jobs, 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 jobs. Um, and, you know, it's something to be really proud of. I mean, they were basically churning out like a battleship every four days based on Henry Ford's new factory assembly line uh, techniques. Um, and, I mean... Henry Kaiser used Henry Ford's yes, technique. Yes, yes, exactly. It's fascinating how they did it, you know. Um, and, I mean, we wouldn't have won the war without this. Uh, and when I was little, I would see Kaiser shipyards, Richmond shipyards, naval. But I, I, I didn't pay attention, and I kind of didn't realize um, how, I, I mean, it was just a major center. And that's when San Francisco exploded in population. You know, it, it, was, it was a sleepier town before. And so everything changed after that. Well, you were up. Uh, this is Bill Walton. This is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Dr. or Professor Amy Shua. And... Uh, I forgot in the intro that she's also known as the Tiger Mom. <laughs> uh, she's written, she may, maybe most famously, she wrote uh, Battle Hymn, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. And I went through my library and was pulling out, taking a look at some of the books that she'd written. And I was surprised how much of this I have underlined. It's a, <laughs> it's a terrific, uh, it's not only a great story about your struggle with your kids or not struggles not quite yeah. work, but I guess I guess yeah it was it was a battle <laughs> yes it was a battle it was a battle and it was a struggle and you know trying <clears throat> to do the right thing based on kind of immigrant values um, but you know there's a funny line near the end I feel like these are American values you know don't give up grit you know respect for elders um, uh, but my younger daughter was very rebellious and wouldn't have it from 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 day one um, and, uh, but yeah, that was, that was, that was quite a, that changed my life writing that book. I was just completely unknown before that. Um, well, you got very well known, uh, <laughs> not necessarily in the best way. Well, what, well, I want to stay with the novel. We'll come, we'll, we'll, we'll thread, well, let, let's, let's stay with the novel just a bit, because, but I do want to go to the themes that are in the, the tiger, tiger mother book, uh, 
what else was your purpose in writing this? And what else did you have woven into the plot? Well, I mean, actually, there, there are a lot of parallels to today in some ways. And then there are a lot of differences. Um, I, I, I really wanted to bring alive some of these historical characters. You know, August Vollmer uh, is the father of American policing. Um, he invented... That the, was an actual historical yes. character. Oh, okay. my God. Yeah. Famous, I mean, he invented the lie detector and finger printing, everything that you see on TV in these detective shows. You know, um, And he just lives up the street, or he lived up the street from my parents. He was, um, I think, an immigrant from Austria. And, you know, these days where I teach at Yale, you you can't even mention police. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, 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 it's actually insane. Uh, you know, you, uh, there are just very significant numbers of people really just want to defund, I mean, just get rid of the police. They or, haven't spent much time in downtown, downtown New Haven. Then. I, well, it, 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 it's just sort of illogical, but, um, you know, so I, 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 it's fun to write a historical novel because you don't have to get into the muck. You know, I'm just describing the way things were. Um, and he was an amazing historical figure and, um, he was also very honorable. It was he who wanted to bring minorities and women into the police force for the first time. Um, so he did that at Berkeley, just kind of out of a sense of decency. Um, and, you know, he's a, he's a, so, so it was fun to kind of, um, uh, you know, Julia Morgan is maybe the most famous woman architect in America, and she lived there. She designed Hearst Castle. Uh, William Randall Hearst reached out to her. Why? Uh, she built the a Campanile, not Berkeley's Campanile, that was the only one that survived the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, just mm. engineering-wise. So her said, I want you to design my castle. And, you know, it's a, it's a monument out there. So I was, I, I guess it was, it was the, the, the thing that's surprising, and I think you're bringing it in, I'm about two-thirds of the way through, and you've, we've discovered that the Chinese laborers turn out to be Japanese laborers. And so Americans thought the Japanese and the Chinese looked exactly the same, I'm <laughs> sure. And so there was that part. Now, in, in the third chap, third part of the book that I haven't got to, do, do some of the, uh, the military political themes, the World War II themes come into the book? A little bit. You got Madame Chiang Kai-shek. Yeah. She was there lobbying on behalf of the yes. nationalists yes. against Mao. And yes. you've got a lot of the communists still in the, in the United States already. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Well, I'm not going to give away part three. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll, we'll let that go. So anyway, let me let me finish the uh, the plug here. Kenny, let's get this one up again. We've got uh, Golden Gate, Amy Chua, and... Uh, a novel and it's a terrific one and it really is evocative of of of, of a golden california in that era yeah oh the, the chapter about the golden gate bridge going up is one of my favorites i mean it's yeah it, it was so spectacular you know before that um they thought bridges should be very rigid okay but this was going to be the longest um suspension bridge or whatever it was so it's they mile used, long. uh yes and they used uh, over rocky shoals right so and so they used a new te technique based on new engineering developments, flexible, a little flexible. And there's an, I, I read all these oral histories of workers hanging, you know, as they were building this thing. So there were these people up, I mean, I don't know how many feet, you know, hundreds of feet up. And there was a, a small earthquake and the bridge was not yet finished. And people swung, they thought to their death, right? They were just going to, they fell 
on the bridge like a hundred feet, and then it went back up. And they they all lived to. I mean, so it was just kind of a huge engineering feat. And then the the oral histories are amazing. Wow, yeah. I guess about nine people died making the bridge. Um, yeah, a, a surprise. I mean, far fewer than uh, Empire State Building. Y yes, it, it, I can't believe you know this, but yeah, it was a relatively yeah. small death that, toll. That was my point. Yeah, considering the magnitude of the effort, it yeah. was uh, yeah. the dangerousness. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's it's uh, so I we may have to cut this short. I've got to go finish reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's get, <laughs> control yourself. Then, uh, one of the themes of your of your book, of your various books, is the difference in the cultures, whether it's the Asian culture and their subsets within the Asian cultures, and, and America's culture today and, and before, and the value systems that people have. And you know, it strikes me that one of the things that makes America so problematic right now is that the value system. Asian, white, or whatever wise that built America is being uh, uh, demonized, uh, discredited. Uh, in fact, the, the uh, they had an exhibition in the Smithsonian uh, oh, three years ago, two years ago, and I have I somehow got the the piece of paper that described it. It was called it was, it was an exhibition of whiteness. <sighs> and it just, do you remember? Do you remember that? I have I heard about it, but I did not see. Well, but, oh my God, I'm I'll, sure. I'll pull up the description for you, but it had all the all the all the things that describe whiteness that you didn't want to be. And it was it was thrift, it was timeliness, it was <laughs> family, it was uh, faith, it was uh, staying married. It was all these sort of things that I really see as success virtues. Completely, and, completely. You know the tiger mom. You, you started with it. There, these are success virtues. If you if you do these things, you will be happy. If you don't do these things, in my view, you're not going to be. And yet, yeah. that's being demonized. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really upside down. We, I think time. we can do this without politics too. Absolutely. I hope. Yeah. Uh, it's it's an upside down town right now. I mean, I have um, a student who was a Korean American. She went to West Point and served. Uh, she flew. Uh, Apache helicopters in Afghanistan for six years. She came and she was a Democrat. She was apolitical. Um, and in her first day of class, the uh, 16 people, you know, went around and there was a discussion about the American dream. And somebody said, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's based on, you know, racism. Uh, it's white supremacist. So when it came to my student, she, she didn't say anything controversial. She said, of course, I know there's a lot of terrible problems in this country. Of course, there's racism. But, you know, given that my parents had nothing and I made it to West Point, I got to Yale and I had, you know, African-American friends in the military. I, I, I do still believe in the American dream. Bill, she was canceled. Nobody in her small group would talk to her after that just for saying that she believed in the American dream. And this is a Yale Law School. This, yes. And it's yeah. only three years ago. It's at Yale Law School. And again, she was not political. Um, and she, <laughs> this is, I mean, she ended up joining the Federalist Society uh, and becoming, you know, very active. And I said, I asked her, I, I, that's unexpected. Why? You know, you're so not political. You don't. And she said, they're the only people who will talk to me. Um, so, and same with meritocracy. You know, I, my parents, um, it, it, I just associate it with America, you know, because if you come from countries, my parents were Chinese, but from the Philippines. So there's so much corruption. You're not rewarded. Yes, my first book, World on Fire, I coined this term market dominant minorities about these tiny 
little minorities like the 1% Chinese minority in Indonesia or Philippines or 3% Chinese minority in Indonesia, um, but also, you know, uh, East or, or, you know, Indians in East Africa or the Lebanese in West Africa or whites in South Africa or Zimbabwe. And I talk about how um, it's a very unusual thing because it's different than America. These small ethnic minorities like the Chinese in the Philippines, even though they're only 1% of the population, they control about 60 to 70% of the economy. They're just entrepreneurial, you know. Um, well, that was true in, in Vietnam. Yes. And, and that, that was, was one of the things we did not understand. Yes. We America. You read my book so closely. That, it was in my most recent book, political, nonfiction book, Political Tribes, and people did not realize that the Vietnam War, we saw it as this big battle, capitalism versus communism. That's it. What we didn't realize is that almost all the capitalists in Vietnam at the time were all ethnic Chinese. So when America comes in and says, we are going to support capitalism, they, all the majority of poor, many illiterate uh, Vietnamese members of the Vietnamese majority saw this as basically only benefiting this Chinese Chinese minority. Um, and that was one of my points that we have really, basically our worst foreign policy disasters of the last at least 50 years stems from this kind of ignorance about the, the unusual or just different ethnic and racial structures that other countries have. So we don't know anything about the countries and yet we bring our democracy project. I think that's another theme. Yes. That our efforts to the neocon democracy project has been a catastrophe. Yeah, I, I predicted in World on Fire in the uh, afterward. 20 years ago, over 22 yes. years ago. It, I, in the afterward to the paperback, it was, I, it was right when we invaded Iraq. And I predicted, I remember Noah Feldman said the opposite. He said, oh, there's not going to be ethnic conflict. The Shias and Sunnis will intermarry. And, you know. and I said, no, um, there is a market-dominant minority there, the roughly 14% Sunnis that are just despised by the Shia majority, and if we think that just bringing elections to Iraq is going to lead to peace and prosperity, it's not. And almost to a T, exactly what I predicted happened. Um, you know, they went, once the Shias came to power, they were so hungry for revenge. They had been oppressed and persecuted by this little minority for centuries. Um, so when you brought in elections, you know, people, they didn't vote for, you know, moderate policies. They voted for, let's confiscate, let's persecute our former overloads. And then the Sunnis, minorities, once they realized, you know, this democracy thing is not going well for us, <laughs> um, they joined the insurgency, Al-Qaeda, yeah. and then later ISIS, uh, which was a Sunni uh, movement. So all of that we just kind of didn't really know about. Um, General Petraeus was actually very nice to me. I, I, when they asked for blurbs for political tribes, I was like, I was so scared they asked uh, General yeah. McChrystal and Petraeus. Book. Oh, it's for political tribes. Oh, yeah. Political that one, tribes, yeah. And they were both so generous. They said, yes, you know, the U.S. made these mistakes. Um, and they both gave me very nice blurbs. So. Well, if you want to be the smartest person, this is the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Amy Chua, and we're talking about her many interesting books and how perceptive she's been and perceptive early, a long time ago. So if you want to... If you're at your next cocktail party, if you're still doing cocktails, although that's not politically correct, um, read this book because what you understand from the world on fire is how we don't understand the, the tribal and the cultural ethnic divisions in the countries that we supposedly want to come and, uh, and, uh, and fix. 
and that bringing our ideals uh, to them forcefully through our democracy promotion efforts has been and will be a disaster. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, you know, it's true. I, <laughs> I called Venezuela. I said right at too. the outset, I mean, yeah. Amy Chua's got a new book out. I said, oh my God, this is great. <laughs> Anyway, continue. I interrupted you. Oh, no, you were right. Like in Venezuela, uh, I also kind of called it right in World on Fire. That was in 2002. Um, you know, almost just kind of predicted what would happen with Hugo Chavez. Um, so so it's it's been an, it's been kind of a sad kind of vindication because, you know, a lot of these places are total messes now. Well, yeah, um, I, I don't know if I should address this much, but, you know, 45 years ago, I was, I was a banker at Continental Bank in Chicago, and we ended up going on a trip to Greece with a bunch of other bankers. from It was a social uh, vacation, and we were in Athens. And I said, you know, we really need to have a foreign policy that makes the world safe for great vacations. <laughs> and by that standard, we have failed utterly. I mean, the, the whole world has become has gone up in arms uh, against each other, not yeah. just against Americans, but against uh, against each other. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a messy moment. We need another big idea. Is your next book going to be on the big idea that we need? You know, first of all, I think that I'm just hoping that the pendulum is going to swing <clears> back. I, I think you know things went so off the rails in, in this country. I mean, it's it's just I, I I'm an optimist. I, you know, despite yeah, all I can these feel problems. That, yeah. Um, and I, I think that we, you know, there are a lot of flaws in the American system, but we have a, an ethnically uh, and racially neutral constitution. It's based on our, 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 our founding is based on principles, not on blood, like China or even France. These are blood-based nations. Um, so I actually think we have the best institutions for self-correction. Admittedly, it's, you know, <laughs> you're not really seeing this right now. But I think over time, you'll there there are you know mechanisms, you know like people want to get rid of the electoral college, right? But that is so short sighted. You know when I studied developing countries, one of the things I noticed is, oh, Ecuador has had thirty two constitutions in the last twenty years, um, and one of the things you know it sometimes it feels very frustrating. But yeah. we have we have lasting institutions. Sometimes it, it it feels a little bit like okay, nothing can happen, but that's also a form of stability. Um, so when you hear a lot of people now saying, oh, we should get rid of this, let's get rid of the Supreme Court, let's get rid of the Electoral College, and I'm always like, not politically, but just looking comparatively at the other countries I've seen, I'm like, you know, let's not, let's not um, uh, take for granted, you know, uh, a, a, a really kind of impressive system that, uh, that the founders put together a long time ago. So the principles of limited government, rule of law, not by man, they're they're pretty good. The problem is you can't superimpose those on cultures that are where people are not. That's not in their uh, DNA. Yeah, or just majority rule. What we yeah. were imp uh, exporting was kind of a weird caricature of democracy. It's like, hey, everybody, let's have elections. You know, uh, and including people who well, you know can, are very susceptible to just crazies. Well, the Greeks had the democracy. They didn't have a republic, and the Greeks evidently in the Peloponnesian Wars. Anytime a Greek general would go out and fight i can't remember it was either the spartans or before that there was another group anyway anytime the generals would lose a battle they'd hold an election in athens and by by majority vote committed the generals to death <laughs> so so the majority was out of control and right. you know so you take you take everything to a majority vote and you end up with mob rule 
Exactly. Especially, yeah, that, that's exactly right. And this was very apparent in developing countries. You know, like, again, my parents were Chinese, but from the Philippines. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of um, uh, just most people are very poor and not educated, you know. So, so yeah, I think our democracy is at least ideally a lot more than just majority rule. What are your classes that you teach at Yale? I'll start out by saying one of your classes has a 98% recommendation from the kids that have taken it. And it's like the only class that comes remotely close to, to that. Yeah, I teach international business transactions and I teach uh, Now that contracts. sounds really boring. They both sound boring, but I-, I <laughs> What's the other one? I interrupted uh, you. Contracts. Sounds okay. even more boring. Um, All right. But you know, I I have a, uh, I do something kind of unusual. I, I can't believe I have to do this now and I can't believe it's unusual. But on my syllabus, I have a banner that says this class is you know, will seek to promote lively debate across all political backgrounds. And, you know, basically, if you take this class, you have to give people the benefit of the doubt. So if somebody says something that sounds racist or xenophobic or misogynist, or in, if you're going to take this class, you have to civilly raise your hand and, you know, express your worries and then have the other side. And it's, it's so much tenser than it used to be, but Bill, it works. You know, I have the most diverse class, but not I don't mean by diverse. I mean in the you mean deepest intellectually sense. diverse. Yes, you know I have I have I have very left wing people. I have lots of minorities, but I have many record numbers of conservatives. And again, <clears> it's <throat> not as fun as it used to be. I remember when my student JD Vance was my student. We had these like lively, feisty debates. His best friend was a was a was a lesbian woman at the other end of the political spectrum. Then people would go out for a beer afterwards. Now there are no friendships across political lines. You can't. If you even talk, if you're a liberal and you talk to a member of the Federalist Society, not even agree with them, just talk to them, or um, you will be labeled Fed sock adjacent and basically socially shunned. Fed sock adjacent. And socially shunned. Um, and so you, one of the things I used to love most about teaching is seeing kind of cross-pollination and people moving towards the middle. You know, like, let me explain. Um, and it's just so much harder now. But in my classes, yes, I, I, it, it's hard. It's hard. I, I get scared now. You know, like I'm, I, I don't know why I have to be so worried, but I'm like, I'm going to air these views, you know, and I just hold my breath. Um, I do think that my classes are a little self-selected. I think the people who really hate me or are really extreme won't take my class. It's like Amazon book reviews in a way. <laughs> the people that already like you are going to read me, but, but, but it's, it's, the division's profound in not only at Yale, but I think in all the major law schools. And, you know, my background's in finance, not law, but it isn't, what's the, what's the, what's the principle of, uh, in law of, of being a lawyer where both sides deserve representation? Yeah. What is I that mean, called? Well, is that, there's what the is, adversarial system. Okay, the adversarial process. system. Yeah, yeah. But aren't we reaching a point now where there's a, school of thought inside Yale and other law schools that the adversarial system is out the window because you, that other side is not worthy defending? Yes. It's a really new development. <clears throat> it's a bit generational. So if you ask Democrats in their 50s, you know, age 50 and above or 40 and above, uh, whatever you, you know, their views, they largely believe in free speech, uh, the freedom of speech. You know? um, but today, the progressives, it's very generational. Many will say no. Um, free speech is leads to racist outcomes. It, you know, it favors white supremacy, and diversity should be a higher value. And 
you know, my colleague that you should think about having on, uh, Tony Kronman, he survived too. He was always a, a progressive, um, but he wrote a book called Tony yes. Tony Kronman. Yes, he was our former dean. Uh, he is C R O N M A N. Uh, yes, K R O N M A N. And what's his book called? Uh, the Assault on American Excellence. Okay. And he just straight out comes out and says all these things. Um, and uh, he's also a Renaissance man, like you. He has read everything. Um, unlike me, he, he's he also you know ph philosophy guru. Um, but you read a lot more books. <laughs> I don't know about that. You're, but they're you're more, very prolific. They're, they're, anyway, continue. <laughs> yeah, so the yeah. assault of American excellence. Yes. So, but the idea is there is a lot of silencing right now. You know, my my students will come to my office hours, and they are afraid. I don't get it. I mean, they are afraid to say their own, their real views. And I am not talking about controversial views, yeah. right? I'm talking about the most basic things that, what? I'm like, what? So now I, a trick I, this is a second best solution. I, I assign provocative readings from all across the political spectrum, very conservative to very left wing. And I ask my students in the class I'm teaching now to do one page reaction papers. You know, what, what's your response to this? Um, and then I have these students of all political stripes share their views. But now many students will only ask me to read their views anonymously. If they're going to be honest, they want me to read them anonymously, um, which I do. And it's actually great because everyone, you see a lot of people nodding, but nobody, you know, so, but can you imagine these are brave, the best, and they're such smart students. They are afraid to express these views. Um, and I, I think it was very wise said, why? And I said, you know, that's a really good question. And I asked a student and she, he said, um, dating. It's dating. I, you know, I, I want to have fun, and uh, I nobody will. If, you know, I don't want. I don't want to have no friends whatsoever. So it's not worth it. It's not worth it. So you're. One of the things I wanted. We, there's never enough time. We were going to have to have you back, and maybe have you back on with uh, with Tony Cronman. Oh, I'd love that. We'd have a, have a really interesting dialogue. Tribalism is real. I believe, and I think it explains an awful lot about why we're not successful in, in promoting abstract principles into places where they're not, it's not going to find fertile ground. And I, I also believe as part of tribalism, nationalism is real. And yes. you look at the experiment in the EU with Brussels and European government and all that sort of thing, there seems to be a lot of pushback now in Europe where people want to be French. They don't want to, or they want yes. to be Italian or yes. Spanish. They don't want to be European. Yeah. And so that's all giving rise to um, a populism. Yes. And yes. that brings Trump into play. Yeah. And you've written about, yeah, I think in political tribes, uh, you point out as long as in 2011, which is 13 years ago, um, 12, whatever, close to it, um, over half of white Americans believe that they've been they they replaced blacks as the primary victim of discrimination, and that's it's it's gotten worse. Oh my then. gosh! Well, I mean, just think about uh, college applications, you know, uh, and and this is just um, it, it's just basic psychology. You know, if you tell a group of people, your people, is, you have to just apologize. You're terrible people. You know, whether it's whites or Asians or what do you think their reaction is going to be? Somebody's going to come along and say, no, actually, you should be proud of being white or we've whites have done a lot of good things. What do you want to hear? You know, so it's so it, it was such a mistake to make this move, you know, um, uh, it, just, you know, it, it, just attacking 
whites. It's, it's just, it just, even strategically, it was such a bad move. But I have a lot of younger friends whose kids are going through the college application process now. And, you know, I've heard I you're a fabulous mentor. Thank you. Fabulous mentor. Yeah, I, 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 I really, I enjoy it. I actually enjoy, um, I just enjoy <laughs> students. You know, they're so interesting and especially the ones that are feeling kind of like they can't speak or they just don't fit in. Um, I mean, I went through a lot of rejections and failures in my life. So I, I always, I'm good at, you know, helping people through those moments. But yes, I mean, I, I think that statistic has gotten worse. Um, people, uh, certainly on the Yale campus, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it's <laughs> my Caucasian students, sometimes they just feel like they have a target on their back, you know. Um, and I just well, spoke to one woman who didn't felt like that. Well, it's a pendulum that's got to swing back. It has to. Or else it's going to lead to well, terrible I think trouble. it has to do with these college applications because I'm talking about um, liberal parents, okay, just people who always wanted to be a very, very progressive, but they are watching their kids who studied very hard and they have these amazing numbers who, who 10 years ago, 20 years ago would have gotten, you know, into great schools. So, you know, they wanted them to go to Harvard or Yale or Columbia. And yes, you can't always do that. But I am talking about students, Caucasian students who don't even get into, you know, uh, you know, Vanderbilt or Georgetown. They're going, they, they're only getting into community college, right? Because of, of this. And I've, I've seen so many of my friends they're they're very upset. And I think that is going to, for better or for worse, that's where the pendulum is going to come back. Like just because it's not political at this point. You know, the, I, I'm talking about you know, you know, people living in Connecticut. They're all Democrats, um, but they just they're outraged and they're like, "This is not fair." So. So the pendulum has to swing. I hope it swings in a positive way. Maybe the, maybe <laughs> I this. Can't maybe go I, any further. I keep I keep looking at this pile of not pile, but this excellent lineup of books here. I'm thinking your next book needs to be on a, on that on the solution. Yeah, it's tricky right now. It's tricky. I don't know whether we can pick it up on the mic, but wife Sarah is here, and she has just said that, uh, forget the next book. Read this book. <laughs> I agree. I agree. It's that, it's that, I love it's your wife. That, <laughs> well, she reads these books. We go back and forth between a place in town and a place out in Virginia. She, she reads books out loud. Uh, and we're, we we tried to read this, but you know you can't speed read out loud. <laughs> <laughs> but we're we're only two thirds of the way through, uh, so the uh, we need to wrap up here. But I'm I, I just trying to think how to best summarize your. You know you you you've got you, you there there are not many people like you in the Yale faculty. No, I definitely feel very, um, totally like an outsider. Well, hang in there. Thank we you. We need you. We need you. Thank you. You know, I on the good news front, um, I think there's a silent majority. Do you know when I told you that I was going to put the, the what I put on my syllabus, like we are going to have lively debate, no silencing in this class. One of my colleagues said, you're going to get like eight people, you know. Uh, <clears throat> I have the longest wait list. I, on top of the 60 people I admitted, I had a hundred person wait list. And this is at Yale, supposedly crazy, you know. Um, so I think there is a silent majority of people who actually want to be more moderate, want to be more generous. Um, and it's just somehow it's been hijacked by the most extreme voices. Uh, so I told you, I told you I'm an optimist. 
<laughs> what about one? We need to close out here, but but China today, China Communist Party, it's looming. It's a problem. It's a problem for Chinese. It's a problem for us. It's a problem for the countries surrounding. I mean, what do you, what's your take on what's happening in China? Well, you know, I'm very sad about it. You know, um, when I was little, uh, China, you know, I grew up in Indiana, uh, uh, like you. West, and West Lafayette. West Lafayette. And, yeah. you know, people always say, how was it terrible? I was the only Asian kid in my school, the neighborhood. And it wasn't terrible. You know, I, I mean, Obviously, we stuck out. We had funny haircuts. I had an accent back then. But, you know, I the system really worked for me. I was a hard worker. I was a great student. And people liked us, you know. Um, and so today, ironically, because China is powerful, right then, back then, China was weak, right? So right. nobody was threatened by China and nobody was threatened by Asian Americans. But today we've got this terrible situation where China is the enemy, you know, the country, and then Asian Americans within the university system are viewed as taking all the college spots, right? So I, it's 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 not just me. My students, my Asian American students, my Chinese American students are there. It, it's a it's a tough time for them. Also on our campus, if you try to complain about anything like oh Asian Americans are being you know elderly Asians are in, in San Francisco are being like punched and kicked, um, if you say that you know people will be. Um, Oh, stop complaining, you know. Now, still, that's happening? It's less so now. During the pandemic, it was what's really your, terrible. What's your take? I, I, the, 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 in China, you're a student of culture. You're obviously a student of Chinese culture. Is it the Communist Party or is it something? I mean, it can't be the Chinese people. It's got oh, to be what the, the country itself. Yeah, what the party's oh, done. Gosh. What the party's oh, done. I mean. It's an extreme. So my <clears throat> students who are from China are all dismayed. Many of them are not going back. And many of people have left China just to come here. It's it's a cracking down. Um, it's very different than it was like, you know, even six years ago. Um, you know, the pandemic, the way they handled that was, you know, people were kind of locked in yeah, for a long time. COVID. But uh, the real answer to your question is I've kind of lost access. Um, you know, uh, you know when I, I went to China for the first time in 1979 with my father, when the country first opened up, it was a poor country, it was all communist. And we were welcome back and we wanted the country to do well. And then over the next 20 years, China just opened up and Yale had all these programs and all my Caucasian students were learning Chinese. And we have really reverted back to um, a time of great hostility on both sides. You know, I, I've interacted with people from China who they a group came to talk at Yale and they just said, your media is so biased um, because remember, they don't have free press. Uh, that's why it's so important that we have a free press. But they hear what they hear is the opposite of what we hear. Um, so. Totally, yes, oh my totally gosh. silent. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up. Next time we want to talk, I want to talk about China. I want to dig deeper. We have to, we have cultural issues here we need to resolve. We also need to resolve how we think about China, what to do about it. And I think, I think you have those answers. I don't hopefully. know about the answers. <laughs> so th this has been the Bill Walton Show, and I've been here delightfully with the famous and terrific Amy Chua. And oh, I'm uh, being instructed to hold up the book, and we're, 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 the only reason I'm happy to be ending this show, the only reason is I get to finish reading the book right away, <laughs> which I'll do this afternoon. So anyway, Amy, thanks. Uh, thanks so much. We'll hope so to have you back fun. on, and thanks for all your work, and uh, you've made a tremendous contribution to how we understand the world, and so keep it up. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Okay, great. 
Uh, it's been the Bill Walton Show, and uh, hope you've enjoyed it. I think we've had another another wide-ranging and hopefully uh, penetrating, insightful conversation about uh, uh, culture and political tribes and uh, Yale Law School and what's going on there. Anyway, hope you'll join us again next time. Uh, as you know, we're on all the major platforms, uh, podcast platforms, and YouTube and Rumble. We're on Substack and CPAC um, now and Monday nights. And send us your comments to thebillwaltonshow.com and also on Substack, and uh, we'll take them into our uh, our our, our our process and hopefully uh, 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 respond in, in something you'll like in the future. So anyway, thanks for joining, and we'll be back to you soon. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.